If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got an interview with the archaeologist and writer Mike Pitts, whose latest book, Digging Up Britain, charts the archaeological story of Britain from the Viking period right back to the earliest days of human habitation. BBC History Magazine's content director Dave Musgrove met him to find out more. Your book, Digging Up Britain, uh, subtitled 10 Discoveries, A Million Years of History is shortly coming out. It's essentially a telling of some of the key themes in British archaeology through 10 excavations. And uh, one of the things is is you're working backwards in time, just as you would uh, if you are actually doing an excavation as you work down through the levels. Is that a fair summation of of the title? It was interesting going backwards because I don't know why, but somehow it just seemed like the natural way to tell the story. And then my editor said, why are you going backwards? So I had to think about it. Um, and I think part of the reason was that it, it it's easier. I'm talking about really big issues and big stuff. And there's a lot of science and technical stuff that I think for most readers will be completely new. And it works for me to start off with the more familiar. So we start with Vikings, where many people have a, have an idea of the sort of world we're talking about. Um, and there's less reliance on obscure sciences. You know, and as we get further back into the past, the technologies of archaeology become ever more important to, to reveal anything at all that we can make sense of. And so you, you're introduced, I hope, gradually to the mysteries of archaeology as, as you progress through the book. And you, you've probably touched on the answer just now with uh, with what you just said, but but why now? Why do we need to to tell these stories now? What's what's, well, what's it's partly, different? Partly why do we need the stories, but also it's partly why are the stories suddenly now here? And I think if, if I answer that one first, is is we've seen a revolution in archaeology in recent years, and it's not something I think that many people beyond the archaeological world are really aware of. And there are various reasons for that. I mean, partly we have in universities in Britain, we have this fantastic head of steam of research and inquiry um, that's substantially helped by our membership of the EU, where there are globally international teams working in British universities, um, gathered from universities across Britain and Europe. So drawing on some of the very brightest minds and researchers, um, working with new sciences, not least in archaeology, that of ancient DNA, which has sprung on us very suddenly and is just transforming the sort of questions we can ask about the past around the world. Um, So we have this fantastic research 
ability in universities and in places like the Natural History Museum, the British Museum in London. Uh, we also have an unprecedented amount of excavation taking place across the British Isles. And this is mainly because of planning law. So it's nothing to do with universities or research. Um, but since the 1990s, uh, developers have been obliged, um, if they're excavating, uh, if, if they're, they're building, if they're developing on land that's likely to contain significant heritage, then they are obliged to pay for archaeological excavation to clear the site before they start. And there's been a huge amount of excavation of this kind. And at the moment, we're seeing it on a vast scale with things like HS2 and major road developments. Um, and the amount we're learning from this is utterly staggering. I mean, it's such that archaeologists who are doing the work are really struggling to keep up with the amount of things that are coming out of the ground. Um, and it is just fantastic. And this material feeds into university research. It's providing material on which these new science sciences can work. And so altogether, this stuff is, is, is just rewriting our ancient past. So we have this fantastic amount of new information. What I thought I'd do is take 10 new projects that represent these new discoveries. And in the book, all 10 of them are very new. Yesterday, I went to actually visit one of the sites where they're excavating again this summer. Um, last week, I went to visit another site where they were digging again. Um, and the, the, the oldest project is about 10 years old, but is only being published this year. The scientific research is only just finished. So these are very new projects. And it's partly, I chose them to make this point that we have this new material. Now, in the past century or so of archaeology in this country, any one of these projects would have stood out as being of national significance. I could have taken another 10, another 10. Um, we've never seen anything like this before in archaeology. So that's the, the reason why now I thought it's a good time to write the book. But the reason why as you put it, why we need it, why it's particularly interesting now, is I think one of the big messages that comes out of this new science, all this new archaeology, is that there's something about the British Isles that is particularly distinctive throughout this nearly a million years of human occupation. And it's relevant to the way we think about ourselves at the moment, to the sort of discussions we're having about national identity. And that thing is that movement and migration travel are an essential part of British identity and have been as long as there have been humans here. I'd like to just pick up on a couple of the stories you tell and just try and uh, dip into. And, and the, the most obvious one to me, the most famous one, Stonehenge, the site that, that uh, um, you've, you've actually worked on yourself. So Stonehenge, it feels like it's a story that's been told quite a lot. Um, but uh, as you read the chapter, you see that actually there's there's a lot more. So what just gives a taste. What's the story you're trying to tell with Stonehenge now? What's, where, where do we stand in our understanding of Stonehenge? I think the biggest story at the moment is that until very recently, it was easy to imagine Stonehenge as an isolated monument, this incredibly distinctive structure with these carved megaliths, the biggest, best, everything else you know you like and and not far from london so it's very much in the public eye you know and 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 to see that in isolation and in fact in the middle of the last century archaeologists were actually talking about imagining an architect coming from ancient greece to design stonehenge because it was impossible to to put it into any kind of local context and what's happened um over the past few decades is that slowly we've got 
we've got to learn more about the world from which Stonehenge sprung and realise that actually it, it has a local context. There's nothing exactly like Stonehenge, but there are monuments um, that in wood that, are compar that would have been, we think, comparable. And we can see how the design, the nature, the ideas that are behind Stonehenge developed over centuries across, across Britain and across the whole of Britain, you know, from the far north down to the far south. Um, in the most recent years, what's happened is the similar thing that we've seen happening across Britain. Those two things that I was talking about, we have, we've seen the uh, appliance of new sciences at Stonehenge, and we've seen excavation on an unprecedented scale. Um, we've seen a little bit at the monument itself, but mostly in the landscape around, and particularly immediately outside the borders of the World Heritage Site, where there is continuing development on quite a substantial scale, most of which is for new housing for soldiers that are being brought back from Germany by the Ministry of Defence to save money. And these new excavations and these new sciences are showing us uh, a world that we had no idea existed around Stonehenge. It was still possible only a few years ago to say, yeah, here's Stonehenge. We understand that it came from British Neolithic society, and we can see other monuments. Perhaps the most famous is Woodhenge, named after Stonehenge, which is less than a mile from Stonehenge, and um, a similar planned structure, but made entirely out of oak. Um, but now what we're seeing is that as well as these ritual monuments around Stonehenge, there are also people were living there. Um, it was a busy, active landscape, uh, quite close to Stonehenge, a, a well-known monument, huge Henge earthwork known as Darrington Walls. Excavation has uncovered uh, evidence for houses of types we've never seen before. And um, it really does look as if these might have been the places where the people who built Stonehenge, the Stonehenge we look at when we visit, lived. And there could have been thousands of people there. Um, and that would undoubtedly have meant people from tra travelling to the area from quite a wide distance. There was no way there could have been that kind of workforce generated locally. Um, but we're also getting what look like sort of villages or small settlements, collections of houses, although the houses themselves we don't have, but we have the rubbish pits and the evidence that people were living and doing things, eating, gathering food, making the tools for everyday use and so on. And that, that was happening not just at the time Stonehenge was built, but in the millennia before and continuing afterwards. So we no longer see Salisbury Plain as an area, um, which it is, of unique concentration of religious monuments only, but also as a place where people were living and working and growing crops and so on. And that's, that's a fundamental change. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to, to think about the, uh, the, the monument uh, and the landscape around it, and as you say, to be thinking about the evidence of the people who are actually involved in it. Um, you, um, you, you mentioned the Neolithic then. We haven't actually, we, we haven't really expressed where Stonehenge sits in the in the in the long story of of, uh, of British history. So the Neolithic. So Stonehenge. What's what are the dates? What's the current thinking about the dates of when Stonehenge was? Well, when we look created? at Stonehenge as a visitor, and we saw these stones, see these stones rising into the air. They were put up around two thousand five hundred BC. Uh, we can't say precisely. Um, you can't date stone, <laughs> um, but around two thousand five hundred BC, and that it was in a period we call the Late Neolithic or possibly even the Chalcolithic, the early Copper Age, so at a time when the very first metals are starting to appear, copper and gold. 
Um, the Neolithic is the New Stone Age, and that's the era of the first farmers in the British Isles. It, that began before Stonehenge was built, around 4000 BC. And it was initiated by migrant farmers crossing the Channel um, and the Irish Sea, arriving from various parts of the continent and bringing with them the crops and animals that they needed. Where, where are we going with Stonehenge then? What's, what are we going to learn uh, in the future from all this work? Are there, is there going to be new findings that, uh, that excite us? Well, as we talk, the um, first major scientific publication on the recent excavations, including that I mentioned at Darrington Walls, are about to be published. Meanwhile, stuff continues, um, and that there is talk of a road tunnel being built by Stonehenge. Um, that is under debate at the moment. Um, there's a sort of inquiry going on, and I have no idea where it's going to go. I think it's possible that the decision to allow the roadworks to go ahead will be taken, that it will be approved, but that doesn't mean it'll happen. And I think it's equally possible that if the roadworks are approved, um, a future government may decide they are too expensive and scrap the whole thing. And that has happened before. But if they do go ahead, then there would, of course, where there is construction above ground, so not actually where the tunnel is, which is completely below ground and will be bored, but above ground, beyond the tunnel, and particularly at the west end, there would be destruction of the ground surface and any archaeology that it contained. In the nature of planning and developments, as happens anywhere in the UK, but with rockets on it, as it's inside a World Heritage Site, there would be archaeological excavation ahead of any of those works. So it would be of a type exactly the same as would occur within the World Heritage Site, even at Stonehenge itself, that we did under, you know, for our own reasons, without being compelled to by a developer. Um, and we know that the area at the western edge, outside the western end of the tunnel, is an area where there is very rich archaeology, um, but it has been little explored. So we would undoubtedly learn a great deal, and who knows what, um, if the tunnel were to go ahead and those excavations were to occur, and they would be some of the largest excavations that we have seen in the World Heritage Site. That, that's, that's not to defend the tunnel on those grounds, but it's just to, you know, to say that's how it works. Yeah. So if, if the tunnel were to go ahead, it's not as if archaeology would be bulldozed out of existence. It would be recorded and we would learn a great deal. Okay, um, let's move on from, from Stonehenge and just look at one of your other stories, Star Car, um, which is one of the, uh, the, the most famous um, archaeological excavation stories in, in British archaeology. So tell us where it is and, and what it's about. Well, some 11,000 years ago, um, beside a small lake in what is now Yorkshire, people gathered and did things on the edge of the lake and they were hunters and fishers and, and gatherers of wild foods. And they were among the very first people to come to Britain at the very end of the last ice age. Um, and since that point, there has never been a point, a period when there have been no people here. So there's been continuous occupation by modern humans since Star Car. And they were among the very first. Now, we know about this site from an excavation in the 1950s, which became an iconic dig and recently, in fact, featured on some postage stamps. Um, when a Cambridge professor was alerted by a local amateur 
to some discoveries, and he shot up north and took with him some of his brightest students and did this excavation that was driven by the fact that here was a waterlogged site. It was in peat. It was, had been continually underwater, and this is because of the lakeside location. Since people had been on the edge of that lake uh, 11,000 years ago, now, the lake is no longer there. It completely filled up with peat, dried up, and now it's just a, a flat valley. It's sort of wet meadows. You can, uh, there are places you can walk out into these fields and jump up and down, and they wobble a bit like a sort of stiff jelly you know, with peat underground. Um, but this waterlogging has preserved stuff that we normally never see, and there's nothing like it anywhere else in Europe. And on the edge of this lake, people threw down trees and branches to provide a platform from which they could... I think probably access the open water through the reeds and plants and mud. Um, and they would sit on these things and work stuff that needed water. So there's a lot of antler working going on. Um, and they're using red deer antler to make things that are really critical to them, harpoon heads for hunting and fishing. And um, antler is, is usefully worked by soaking it, by softening it in water. And I think that's one of the things they would be doing. And there are other things they could be doing that require the water. Anyway, this site was, had been known about for a long time. And um, not that long ago, archaeologists went back there to see what was going on and were horrified to discover that it was drying out. And so it had always been assumed that everything that was still in the ground would be preserved. But this meant that the waterlogged stuff, the wood, the antler and the bone and so on, was disappearing. And so a new excavation was mounted by some Cambridge and other university students. And eventually they got a nice big EU grant <laughs> And they enlarged the dig and did a huge excavation and astonished us all by finding not only the sort of stuff that had been found in the 1950s, but much more, including um, very ephemeral evidence for houses. And so that for the first time, we realised that people had not only been going to the lake edge to go out to fish or whatever and um, to do things in the water, but had actually been camping on the side, on the ground, on dry land. Um, and... It turned out that the area that had been dug in the 1950s, which produced an astonishing collection of artefacts, including um, headdresses of some kind carved out of red deer antler, often with the antler still in place, the top of the skull, which appeared to then be tied to people's heads and quite pro probably used in some kind of ceremony or dance. Um, and there were dozens of these, and there's only three or four from the whole of the rest of Europe. And... Um, it turned out that it was only in that Cambridge area where they dug in the 1950s, a relatively small area, that almost all of these headdresses were. And then the rest of the site, there were just a scatter. So there was something actually unusual about the stuff that came out in the 1950s. And it, it's quite bizarre, but it really looks as if at some point these people deliberately dumped a huge amount of material that represented everything that was important in their lives, and uh, not least the, these red deer headdresses which suggest you know one interpretation is they're like masks and what they're doing with these is they're kind of blurring the distinction between animals that are really important to them in their world and themselves there's a sort of half human half animal um, nature to these people wearing these headdresses that are quite often carved out of fresh skulls so um, you know, you'd have to take the brain out, things like this. This, this isn't a, um, a cold calculating thing. It, it would be quite an emotive thing. Um, and some of these antlers are absolutely vast. These deer are bigger than red deer.
um, we typically see today. But as well as that, there's all sorts of working tools, there's ornaments, there's beads and stuff, and paddles and things, you know, from canoes. There's just everything that you'd expect to get in a, on a little lakeside camp. And it's all dumped in. Um, and the rest of the area, there's just scattered tools and things and just what you'd expect a normal everyday existence on the edge of a lake. So there's some mysterious thing going on where they deliberately disposed of all this stuff. Um, and we really can't explain it. Um, but one, one thing I suppose it does tell us is that we have to be careful when we think about these early hunter-gatherers, um, that we have to be careful to do more than just imagine these semi-naked people in ragged skins um, with no... Uh, vision of another world, of the future, with no ambition that they've got ideas, that even politics, if you look, possibly not the right word, but, you know, sort of social things that are important in their lives. Um, and they're leading complex lives and they're doing things that we can't explain in simple terms of survival. They're not just surviving, they're doing bigger things with their lives. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. That when the farmers arrived, they arrived. In other words, when they didn't, um, it wasn't the crops and the animals that came that were used by the hunter-gatherers. They didn't decide to start farming, nip across the channel, pick up a sheep. So the whole Star Car um, uh, excavation and the return to Star Car is giving us a bit more of an insight into this Mesolithic hunter-gatherer worldview, but a worldview that, as you admit, we, we just can't fully comprehend or understand. No, exactly. Um, but of course we can imagine and we can guess and we can talk about it, and I think that's a fantastic conversation to have. Um, and um, it, it's, you know, generally around the world we tend to diminish, I think, the achievements, um, the abilities of hunter-gatherer societies. We are, in effect, farmers, all of us, and have been for millennia. Um, and, and culturally, we tend to look down, even if we're not aware of doing it, we tend to look down on people who don't farm, who live simply by gathering wild foods and animals. And I use that word simply, deliberately, because we have this idea that just living off the wild, you just—it's like picking blackberries or something. You just go out and collect the stuff. But actually, it takes a lot of organisation and planning and knowledge and skills. And these people are doing much more than that. Um, not least because in a rich environment, as would have been the case in in Britain ten thousand years ago, with forests—I mean, a landscape that we would entirely recognise—all the plants and animals that we know today, but with a few more, like wolves and bears and um, and great herds of red deer on a scale that we we would never see today um, but basically in the sort of landscape we have but it's a really rich landscape it has a fantastic amount to offer and um moving slightly in a scars that but taking us a bit back to stonehenge there's a there's a site called blick mead which uh, is near stonehenge which is uh, been recently excavated which is has some comparatives to starcar up to a point yes it does i mean starcar is on the edge of a lake and it's actually, or, or what was a lake, and it's actually near the mouth of the lake where a, a river leaves the lake and flows south, River Derwent. And Blick Mead is a Mesolithic site again. It's distinguished mainly by flint work. Um, the flint tools, which is what normally we only ever have from these sites where you haven't got um, preservation that you have at Star Car from the waterlogging. Um, and there's masses of flint tools at, at Blick Mead. 
and there's also masses of burnt flint from from we can can only be hearths i think um that have been where the debris has been gathered up and it's at this spring so it's, it's analogous to star car like that it's, it's at a spring on the edge of the river avon which flows down to the the south it's not really comparable to star car because um i have to be careful how i put this but but i haven't yet seen any evidence to suggest to me that there is any preservation at Blick Me that is any different from any other Mesolithic site in the UK. Um, so in all the things that we find at Blick Me, which are flint tools, burnt flint and animal bones, all those would be preserved in exactly the same way. In fact, possibly even better because the animal bones are eroded by being near the spring by the water um, if they've been dug up a few hundred yards from Stonehenge on the chalk. So it doesn't look like a waterlogged site I think the interest and the significance of Blickmead is simply that it's very close to Stonehenge. Clearly, there were people there during the Mesolithic, during this long hunter-gatherer period, over many centuries. And there are really carbon dates that show this spanning over many, many centuries. People were returning to this area of spring. Um, and curiously, up until Blickmead, we had almost no evidence that there were people hunting and fishing and gathering in this area of Salisbury Plain, apart from close to Stonehenge, a handful of big pits that had held apparently great pine posts made from tree trunks, um, almost monumental arrangement of pine posts, um, which were completely inexplicable, and not least because we didn't have any other evidence that there were actually people there at that time. So, so Blickmead's really important in that sense, and I think it's, it's, it flags out the possibility of there being other sites all the way along the River Avon, and possibly even a waterlogged site, you know, where the plain widens out in the same way that we have at Star Car. What I, I do like about the Blickmead um, Stonehenge link um, and uh, some of the other things that come through in your book is uh, one of the themes I see is, is the long durée of some of these sites and, and the fact that stuff goes on in places mm for a very long time, much more than you can imagine. So you consider a monument a moment in time, but actually yeah. quite a lot of yeah. the time we're finding that things, some places, they seem to be important um, crossing through our, you know, our artificial archaeological boundaries. Um, so what's going on there? Are, are we getting better evidence of, of, the, of the long lifespan of some of these sites now? I mean, we are, partly just through the sheer amount of excavation that's taking place, you know. But, um, and you're right, I mean, at Blick Mead, we have radiocarbon dates that span thousands of years. Um, from that alone, we can't tell, and the evidence isn't in yet, whether that means there were people there all the time or whether it just means that people were returning and then leaving and going back o over many generations. Um, and at Stonehenge, we have a similar thing. The first visible monument at Stonehenge, the first construction, is an earthwork, is a circular bank and ditch that encloses this big space. And that was dug about 3000 BC. Um, we're getting radiocarbon dates now um, from cremation burials, from bone from cremation burials that suggest people were being buried on the site a, few, a century or two or even more before that. And we have continuous activity with stones being moved about um, and pits being dug and who knows what going on at the site for another thousand years. And the stones, the big stones that we know appear around about 2,500 BC, but we, other things happen after that as well. They're rearranged and um, they start to fall down. People do other dig pits that we don't know why after that. It goes well on into the Bronze Age. 
Um, so the more we look at any of these places, the more we see this continuity. We, we don't ever see sort of gaps where, hang on, where's everybody gone? You know, that never happens. But what is interesting is this particular period we're talking about at the moment, the Mesolithic, the Neolithic, the hunter-gatherers and the farmers that followed who arrived around about 4000 BC. We have new ancient DNA research, um, which has only been published uh, uh, this year, um, that makes it pretty clear that when the farmers arrived, they arrived. In other words, when they didn't, um, it wasn't the crops and the animals that came that were used by the hunter-gatherers. They didn't decide to start farming, nip across the channel, pick up a sheep, you know. <laughs> um, but people came into Britain and brought the idea of farming with them, as well as everything that went with it, and different technologies, completely different approach to working stone, which is a fundamental material for both of these peoples. And what the ancient DNA tells us is that there is almost no hunter-gatherer DNA survives that moment. Um, there's almost complete replacement in population. So you and I do have a bit of hunter-gatherer DNA in us from this area going way back, um, but it's as likely to have been brought into Britain by those farmers who had, in previous centuries, who had, had been marrying, breeding with some of the indigenous hunter-gatherers and the farmers themselves that ultimately come up from the Middle East. Um, so there is a, a fundamental break. And we can see it in the archaeology around 4000 BC when technology has changed, everything changes. Um, and we can now see it in the DNA as well to confirm, really, that that's what happened. And how robust do you think that technology is? I mean, it's, it's new science, isn't it? Is it's it, a very is, new science. Do you, think it's, yeah. do you think it's going to be proven correct it, it, in the long term? Among archaeologists, it, it's definitely controversial because there has been, I mean, in the past few decades, I think since about 1980, archaeologists in Britain had decided um, to focus on indigenous development um, prior to that time especially going back into the early 20th century and and the previous century there'd been a tendency to think that anything good that happened in the ancient world really was to do with rome and greece you know if, it, if you couldn't get it from greece or rome then it would come from a more ancient civilization in iraq say mesopotamia or something like that but but up here in the far north, we were kind of savages, as described by Caesar. And so the, the model really came from people who'd been largely educated at Oxford and Cambridge and been brought up on the classics. Um, and that worked well, not just because it gave a framework for people to interpret the past, but also because it gave them a way of dating the past. And until really carbon dating came along in the second half of the last century, there was literally no way to absolutely date anything from prehistoric times. And what archaeologists were able to do was to look for analogies between artefacts, artefact styles, and things, technologies like the introduction of metallurgy, for example, in Britain, that they could find these analogies with comparable artefacts and technologies in the Aegean. Um, and often it worked. And so, and in the Aegean, you've got, you've got a a modicum of real dating. You have ancient Egyptian chronologies, you have ancient Mesopotamian chronologies, and you can use these to date stuff that's happening at a time when Britain is entirely prehistoric. 
Um, and that worked. A chronology was built up. Now, when radiocarbon dating came along in the 1950s, everything seemed at the beginning to work fine. But as more and more dates came in, the British chronology started to fall apart. And the ultimate result of that was that many of the things that happened in Britain that were said to have occurred because ideas or people travelled up from the Mediterranean actually occurred before they happened in the Mediterranean. So they have to have been developed locally. So then what happened is archaeologists said, right, we're going to look at what's going on in Britain. We think native Britons, as it were, have been undervalued and underappreciated. We'll focus on that. And it worked really well. And so there's this now, there's this culture in academic archaeology to automatically, I think, assume that if some change occurs in ancient Britain, it's because of local development, because of social change, uh, economic change, maybe a bit of climate affecting things, but not drastically. Um, and what the ancient DNA is now suggesting very strongly, and it is a good science, um, is that while most of that approach by the archaeologists is still supportable and is true, there were occasions when there were very substantial changes in population. Um, and we have another science that suggests, again, very strongly, it's a good science, that as well as these major migrations, and there mean principally two of them, one around the time the farmers arrive and the other around the time Stonehenge was built, possibly a little bit after, but interestingly, not quite well dated enough that we can say who actually built Stonehenge. Um, and these are the Beaker people who came in. But apart from these two major migrations, we can also see a lot of um, localised movement, long-distance movement of individual small groups. And that is showing up through... Um, chemical analysis of bones, um, looking at isotopes of a, a variety of elements um, which are affected, the, the take-up of these different isotopes are affected by um, geographical factors like climate, weather, proximity to the sea and geology, underlying geology. And these are things that can be mapped and as, in a sense are absolute. And, um, you know, we know more or less what the climate was like. Geology, of course, is fixed. And and to a greater or lesser extent, individuals, if you're lucky, can be shown to have grown up in a particular part of Europe. And that has produced some real revelations. I mean, one of the first and most spectacular examples of this that came up was a chap we know as the Amesbury Archer, who was buried near Stonehenge um, a couple of centuries after Stonehenge was built. And he's one of these beaker people, and he's one of the most spectacular. I mean, clearly there was something about him that was special. He took with him to his grave um, the sort of thing that any self-respecting beaker man would have done. But he seemed to have a whole, you know, enough stuff for three or four men. Um, and he has everything. He doesn't just have, say, flint arrowheads, lots of arrowheads, and a dagger. But he has that and more, and he's got some gold earrings. He has the whole kit. He's a spectacularly um, wealthy or powerful man of some kind. And the chemical analysis of his bone, the isotopes, showed that he grew up in Central Europe. And he's actually got one or two artefacts in his grave, and one particular, a particular style of pin that we can also say is Central Europe. So, you know, the archaeology fits the, the science. Um, and there's been a lot, there's a lot more of this described in the book. This isotope analysis is, is really, really um, helping us see ancient Britain in a different light. That was Mike Pitts. 
Mike's book, Digging Up Britain, will be out in October, published by Thames and Hudson. If you're looking for more history content, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Robert Poole will be discussing the Peterloo Massacre. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.